every API I can think of, Instagram, you name it, you know, they all have sort of an idea of how they want you to use it. With GraphQL, it just feels so unopinionated. You get to ask for just the data that you want, and then we just give you that data. GitHub's really sensitive about breaking REST APIs. I could never do with REST because I would have to go, okay, let's build an endpoint and hope someone goes and tries it. All of a sudden, all these companies aren't afraid to come out and talk about it. Like Shopify, for example, they got right up on stage and they're like, yeah, our whole mobile app is built in GraphQL, even though we've never really talked about this publicly before. Hey, this is Brian, and you're listening to Jamstack Radio, a bi-weekly series where we discuss the Jamstack, a new way of building websites and apps that are fast, secure, and simple to work with. Jamstack Radio is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio. Cool, so welcome to another installment of Jamstack Radio. Here I've got Ryan once again. How's it going? And I've got Kyle Daigle. How are you? Kyle, do you want to introduce the, to the actual audience who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. So my name is Kyle Daigle. I'm a platform engineering manager at GitHub. I run the team that deals with internal and external APIs. So if you've ever integrated with GitHub or used any integration that uh, works with GitHub, that comes through my team. Cool. And then what I found, so I went to the GraphQL Summit, which this actual podcast episode is going to be about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to there yesterday and I actually learned that your platform team basically owns all the REST API for GitHub. Is that what the true? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Wow. That's a BS API. Yeah, I mean, so we initially started years and years and years ago with the REST API. Um, and that was built, I think, maybe like a year after GitHub was started, somewhere in there. And then there has been a platform team ever since. But recently, the team, I think maybe in April or so, we started serving our own customers, meaning GitHub engineers mm. as well. Whereas before, you're only ever dealing with external integrators, which is Huge. I mean, there's like a quarter million uh, OAuth applications and a bunch of integrators and millions and millions of people that use the REST API, but now we kind of serve both audiences. It's not just outward looking, it's also internal looking. Okay, so then when you say internal looking... For GitHub engineers, are they building their own projects to help coincide with like the GitHub platform? I mean, so forever we've really used our REST API to do a lot of like the chat ops tooling. So yeah. like Qbot, for example, our chat bot that calls into the REST API. We have a bunch of internal tools that also call into the REST API. Most up until recently, that's been what we've done. Of course, our own engineers build side projects and little chat bots and whatever that can do that sort of stuff. But we're sort of looking towards the future now, and thus the GraphQL Summit, yeah. uh, wondering like, okay, can the platform actually be a platform for our own engineers yeah. instead of just external? You know, and then letting sort of our own engineers fend for themselves and hope they can get everything that they need performantly and you know have it actually work. Cool. So then, without bearing the lead too much, yeah. <laughs> So you guys recently switched to GraphQL as your your thin layer. So it's an instead of using REST. Using GraphQL. So, what does that what does that even mean? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, if if you haven't had a lot of experience with GraphQL, the big difference is primarily that a REST endpoint you go to a URL, and then the payload body is completely controlled by us. Whatever we give you is what you get. So, you might say, "I want to go to a repository slash GitHub GitHub." We send you this enormous payload, and you probably just wanted to know like how many open issues there are, or who owns this repository, or whatever. With GraphQL, what's really interesting is you get to ask for just the data that you want via a single endpoint, and then we just give you that data. And it's shaped the same way. So it's 
basically just a query language. Uh, and then the response has just the data you asked for. So from GitHub's perspective, it's really great because just thinking externally at first at least, we're calculating like so much data that never actually gets used by integrators. Like integrators don't want 400 counts in you know 72 different fields about who touched this when. They generally want one item, but we're over here processing all this data all the time. And you know, at GitHub scales, like simple things like counts can get very expensive uh, to to compute. And so we keep delivering that, and nobody wants it. And GitHub's really sensitive about breaking REST APIs. I mean, mm -hmm. we give it out and. We want it to work forever and always, unless there's an absolute, uh, you know, very important reason to change it. The difference being now we can go, okay, here are all these same expensive fields, but you're only going to ask for them if you absolutely need them, uh, which saves us a lot of processing time. But also, it helps the integrator get the data in the sort of format that they want, so they're yeah. not, you know, beholden to however we decided to structure all the data. They can they can decide that on their own. Yeah, which is interesting. So I actually played around with the GitHub graphical yep. API tool or whatever that whatever it's called. Sure. And uh, so I started handling like trying to find out open source projects and data based on that. And I haven't actually, honestly, I've never played with the GitHub API that mm -hmm. deeply before. Mm -hmm. It's just mainly like, how do I create a repo or how do I get repo data? That's it. But then I started looking at the data and like seeing how users are not really associated that closely to repos, like. Mm -hmm. It's not for obvious reason. Like you don't want to be able to scrape every some every single contributor's emails. Sure. Um, so stuff like that's not easily accessible um, through the API. And I could see how many like how many recipe uh, endpoints I would have to hit to get the data that I want to like basically manage. What I'm trying to do is manage my own open source projects yep. that I hopefully want to contribute to and get involved with. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I could totally see how many recipe endpoints I could actually hit. And I'm actually pretty grateful for it being in GraphQL and not having to like. Hit that, hit that, hit that. It's actually just structure my query and that's it. Yeah. And doesn't a lot of GitHub's API actually embed the extra responses? Like it'll embed the user objects in the repo or the owner and the organization as well mm -hmm. to kind of cut down on that. Yeah, most most API responses have like the thing you're looking for, and then if it is uh, related to a repository, it'll send the repository down, and then it'll send the actor if that's relevant, or mm -hmm. the owner if that's relevant. You know, some user object as well. So the REST API does cover most of that, but whenever you want to do something that's even like mildly cross-cutting, so mm -hmm. like if you're trying to use the REST API to manage your issues, for example, because you're doing an open source project. You'll you could go if you know the repository. If you're building it as a one-off, you can go. All right, I know this repository, so I'm, gonna, I'm going to go to my repository slash issues, and then you'll get mm -hmm. that data. But then, if you want to look at that particular issue, you're going to have to go in one more level. Yeah. And then, if you want to look at you know labels or milestones, and so I wonder what other things are labeled this way. You got to go into another level. Yeah. Um, and then, if you're an integrator, you definitely don't know that first step. You don't know what you're looking for quite yet. You're probably enumerating. All right, what are all the repos that Brian has access to? Yeah. So then you're going down another list. So I mean, I think REST definitely has its place, you know. But for our use case, working externally, definitely. GraphQL gives us so much more flexibility to let integrators just choose the data that they want and us not have to compute this huge amount of data that you know you probably aren't even using. Yeah. Could you have done some of that with just passing like when I've made some restful endpoints, mm -hmm. I pass parameters that are like give me these and only this part and it lets me empty out a lot of the struct. Is that I mean that's 
Is that something that you guys considered doing, or yeah? I mean, so like JSON API like kind of works that way. Along mm-hmm. with that, there's a there's a bunch of things that sort of allow you to say like I just want these keys, or mm-hmm. I want this relationship to come alongside it. Um, that works well, but it still is multiple endpoint driven. Mm-hmm. And so you're still managing a multitude of endpoints. So you have repositories, and then I just want the key, or I have repositories, and then I want the owner. That mm-hmm. still works, but then we're still sort of defining the meta structure of what you're allowed to get mm-hmm. at. So the thought that I had, especially when we started working on GraphQL, is what new things will happen when we don't presume that everyone wants to start off a repository? Like, hmm. there's an assumption there that, like, you probably want to start at a repository, but what interesting things could happen if I say, no, no, start at an issue or start globally at a label? Like, uh, then what happens, yeah. you know? Which I could never do with REST because I would have to go, Okay, let's build an endpoint and hope someone goes and tries it. And it has like an overhead, but with GraphQL, we're able to basically just create a type. And as long as we expose it the right way, you can get whatever data you want in whatever format. So that hasn't really been proven yet. You know, the early access for GraphQL is still (laughs) super early, but I am hopeful that there's going to be really interesting uses in a public way when we're not accidentally driving your integration via our API design. Because yeah. if you think about it, almost every API drives integrations by its design. Yeah. You know, Dropbox's API only wants you to do like a certain amount of things. Every API I can think of, Instagram, you name it, you know, they all have sort of an idea of how they want you to use it. And if you want to, you know, subvert that, it's basically impossible or you have to go and scrape a ton of data, stick it in a database and then essentially build your own API around that, right? Yeah. Uh, so at least with GraphQL, I mean, there's it's a lot of hard work on the other side, on the internal side too, but at least with that from like a business perspective, if we're able to create more interesting, or excuse me, allow others to create more interesting integrations using it, then it's worth the cost, right? It's worth it's worth the sort of technical complexity that GraphQL can, you know, introduce versus a, a more simplistic REST-based, you know, endpoint-driven API. Yeah. So I was thinking about that um, when I was thinking about this topic, and one of the issues that I was thinking is you're letting other API users call into your backend, and that logically can map directly into your MySQL calls mm-hmm. eventually. How do you protect against you know one bad actors and sure. two somebody writing in a really abusive query? Yeah, so we kind of have a couple different ways that we're doing that now, and some are reused from our REST endpoints, and mm-hmm. so uh, we have rate limiting. And so the, we, we have that right now, same as the REST API, but we also have consumption-based limiting. We can calculate how long your request was taking, and if, it, if uh-huh. you consistently take a lot of time per request, we'll start to push you back and say, you can't really do this. Um, that's all mapping the old way onto the new way. Mm-hmm. Uh, GraphQL is a lot more interesting because it gives you the ability to calculate hypothetically, the cost of the query before you run it. And so there's a couple different ways that people do this right now, and we're sort of still experimenting on how we want the external API to be limited. But right now, we can calculate the complexity of any given field. And so if you say, hi, you know, I want uh, this viewer's login. Okay, well, login is just a simple, you know, column in a a table, and so that might cost one. Mm -hmm. If you want to do a search, well, we're going to have to go to Elasticsearch, we're going to have to get the results, we're going to have to go to the database, whatever. That might cost 10 per item that you're expecting to get back. And so you can do complexity costing, which is some things that like uh, Sangrio, which uh, is one uh, implementation of GraphQL. The Ruby version has this, where you basically can say for these types, these fields cost 
a number. Mm -hmm. And then you can say, when you get the query, you can go through and say, all right, they're asking for all these fields. Let's add up the overall complexity. And then we can say, ah, you asked for a query that's going to cost 200 complexity. You can only spend 150 complexity. We won't run the query. Okay. And so that's one way that it can be done. There's also depth. So presumably, every time you go in a level, so you're going from a user to the user's repositories, the repositories to the issues, the issues to the you know, the uh, issue creator. So the creator's back to repositories because you can just keep going down and down and down with GraphQL. And so some people minimize by depth. So you can only go five levels deep before we're going to stop you. That's not particularly ideal. Like, I don't really like that one, but it's something that is sometimes necessary based on your implementation. But I think we're kind of trying to get somewhere between those two. And then I believe it was Facebook who was telling me they cost uh, primarily on keys. So basically like the number of fields we return back to you. Mm. So we can only return back to you 100 fields, 100 you know, key values. Uh, Regardless of how deep they are? Exactly. Okay. Because generally speaking, there is a cost in ca- just calculating those, regardless of like how much data you have to go get, the processing and going through like, this is the query, we're going to go to an AST, and then we're going to start populating it with data, and then we're going to go deeper, and then we're going to go deeper, and then we're going to go deeper. That yeah. takes a lot of time, and it's mainly CPU. It's not database like most you know, endpoints you would think are, uh, but the, the key calculation is another way. Mm-hmm. And so I think we're definitely interested in leaving the quintessential rest you can call 500 times an hour or like every 15 minutes or whatever and go to something much closer to cost. The trick with that is how do I let integrators know how much something's going to cost so they can plan on whether they're like allowed to make this many calls without just making the call and have it get rejected and then all of a sudden being like oh you can't talk to us for an hour you know yeah. that's not a, that's not a great <laughs> uh, a great way forward so uh, we're still sort of investigating and that's what we're hoping to ha- like having been the first major public graphql uh, api where not like no one really knows cuz when you're internal it's different yeah. when you're internal i can say before you go to production you have to run the query and we can just say nope we're not going to run that query mm-hmm. but externally i have no idea what you're going to send me and so we're still trying to figure out what the best practices are and talking with folks at like the graphql summit on what's normal what's worked for them internally or if they have an api that's smaller what's worked with them you know externally as well so can we dig a little deeper back up it's always fun to talk on yeah, a podcast yeah. about like code and mm-hmm. implementation but i'm interested to hear more about how you guys implemented graphql to your current setup sure um, because when i first heard it you guys are doing it, i was like oh how are they doing that with rails like i thought graphql was like a fancy javascript thing yeah so. it definitely is easier if you're in javascript only because um, when facebook released it they released their reference implementation in javascript yeah and so a lot of the tooling and if you were at graphql summit like a lot of the examples were all in javascript and yeah. so uh, we're ruby and we do do other languages we have go we have c we have c++ and stuff like that but it's not something that we rush to generally speaking, we start in Ruby and then we leave it when we need to. And so we luckily found a really great uh, open source maintainer, Robert Masalgo, who wrote GraphQL Ruby, which is just a Ruby gem that's an implementation of the, or I guess a re implementation of the JavaScript implementation. And it follows the spec and it's basically just a way to pass in a query. And then he has built a really great uh, DSL that allows you to. Say okay, I want a user object, and a user object has a login, and that 
it matches the username from the underlying record. So we've relied really heavily on this open source gem. And we also have used um, some open source work from Shopify. Shopify release, Shopify, uh, or sorry, GraphQL batch, which is a way to uh, avoid going to the database over and over and over again. You basically batch up your requests and then uh, send those out. So like from different users, you get ten people asking for it. Or? If you're like, uh, if you're going through a query and you're saying like, I want to get Kyle's repositories, and then for each of his repositories, I want to know the last person who commented or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you say the last person that commented, it's going to iterate through all of my repositories. So in a normal, without any sort of batching or loading, it's going to go select from comments where ID is one, and then it's going to go select where comments where ID is two or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so what batching does is it uses promises to basically go through and say, okay, I know Kyle wants comment one, I know Kyle wants comment two, I know Kyle wants comment three, and they go through all that level of the tree, and then once they finally need the data, because say maybe I want to know who wrote the comment or when it was created, then that those all run in a single query where it's going to say select from comments where ID is in this list of IDs. Mm-hmm. It's very similar to Data Loader, which is something that Facebook wrote, and again, is in JavaScript, and so this is like a Ruby uh, implementation that's similar but not exactly the same uh, to how data loader works. So GraphQL just came out a technical preview like a yeah. month ago. Was it pretty painful to start this project so soon after it was open sourced? So like I thought it was going to be, but not really. So I I sat down, I want to say in March, I, I had spoken with our VP of engineering at GitHub and we had talked kind of like hypothetically, like what would, a, what would the next version of the API look like? And I remember saying, well, you know, I think it needs to be more workflow based. Right now, REST APIs are very specific to objects, but I think people don't work that way. They work through workflows. They want to accomplish something. And so I had seen GraphQL. I had a friend who was really into JSON API. And so I had looked at some of that. But the uh, VP of engineering had done some work in GraphQL in in his previous jobs. So he said, you know, why don't you go try putting together a GraphQL uh, proof of concept and just see? So probably within two weeks, I had like a really great GraphQL like proof of concept that was so compelling. And to be totally fair, you know, thanks to the open source community, because starting from scratch would have taken a lot of time. Yeah. Um, but being able to use the open source code to do the query processing and setting it all up. After two weeks, it's like so compelling. And so one of the tools that they have is uh, Graphical, which is like this IDE for looking at GraphQL queries. And uh, we have it on uh, developer.github.com for the GitHub GraphQL API. And so I built this you know, thing in uh, Ruby and Rails inside our giant GitHub monolith app and then put an extra endpoint into the REST API that was like, oh, if you call this, you're going to get GraphQL instead. And then pulled up this, you know, graphical IDE, and you start using it, and it's the most magical thing in yeah. the world because it just it all of a sudden clicks. You're like, oh my goodness, I can go from this repo to this user, back to the repo, back to a different user, and all the way down. And then you can look at the queries that it represents, and you know, it maybe made three queries. Yeah, you know, it's it's not oh, as bad as you think it is. Okay. Um, and I mean, you have to build it that way, but uh, I wouldn't even say, you know. Right now, that it's uh, that it was particularly you know difficult. It was just sort of like wrapping your mind around both GraphQL and uh, Relay because Relay adds a, a bit of um, standard onto GraphQL for talking about you know collections of objects and standards for getting single objects via global ID. Uh, Relay sort of adds some stuff onto GraphQL, and we decided to to use that 
because it's a, it's pretty standard now. But by doing that, I mean, like if it, you know, in my uh, GitHub Universe talk, I mean, I said like, whoa, it's true. It's one of the few times I think where it felt just magical, where an API was felt magical. Um, so I was really excited. It wasn't that. Uh, it wasn't really difficult. The hard part was basically figuring out how to think like that after ma- building REST APIs. You know, my entire career, where it's very linear and kind of flat. You know, and having never seriously worked in a graph database, because uh, the people at GitHub that have done a bunch of graph database work thought like, yeah, no, this makes sense. It's good. Uh, you know, it's like it's not a big deal, but like. For the rest of us, you know, it takes a little bit of time to learn and understand, you know, how all the different uh, pieces work. Oh, awesome. so you talked about changing the way you think about it, and like I've built a, hand, a lot of APIs and a lot of them through this RESTful kind of mm-hmm. logic, and I use, I start with my data model back on the back end, and I think, how the hell are somebody going to use it on the front <laughs> end? Design some endpoints, follow some REST standards. Mm-hmm. How does that different? Because I use that to figure out writing that middle layer. Sure. What's different in GraphQL's world? So, I mean, the purpose, like if you talk to the folks from Facebook, the the sort of TLDR of their origin story is they wanted to help the newsfeed team build the newsfeed. Mm-hmm. And so there's kind of two ways to think about that, right? They go to the newsfeed team and say, What's all the data that you possibly need? And we're going to put it in this endpoint. Or mm-hmm. they basically say, Okay, what types of data do you need? And we're going to build that in a way that lets you decide how you want it. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that's what's really compelling about GraphQL. And I don't know that GitHub internally has seen that promise quite yet as we continue to add more and more of GitHub's objects into the schema. But again, the really interesting thing is you add all this data into your GraphQL schema and then you go to an application engineer, a product person, a designer even, and you're like, you know, what are you trying to build? And they'll say, oh, well, I want to make a new dashboard on GitHub or whatever. And now they have a way to get at all that data that's relatively non-technical, right? It's basically, you know, okay, I want a user, user, curly brace, and then the IDE Especially says what you want. Explorer. Yeah, and the IDE says what you want, and you're like, huh, I wonder what a user has, and you click it and it tells you. Yeah. And so to me, what's really, really interesting in comparison to say, going, okay, what are your requirements? I'll build a REST API that can meet those requirements. Now we say, how can I describe a user? What does a user have? A user has an avatar. Okay, so now we have a user object and an avatar object. Well, what else has an avatar object? Okay, an avatar object can exist on OAuth applications. It can exist on organizations, you know, so on and so forth. And then we don't know what the next requirement is going to be, you know? And so it's really interesting for me to let the product people, whether those are engineers, designers, product managers, it doesn't matter, use GraphQL to build the application, yeah. You know, we're not sitting there and sort of being arbiters of how to get at data. We're saying, okay, no, here it is. Or are you missing data? Then let's add it in. And then some other companies, we haven't done this yet, but a lot of other companies and people who use GraphQL use mocking pretty heavily to allow product engineers to go, all right, I think I need a new object that looks like this. And so they put it in, and then I want, you know, this is going to be a string and this thing's going to be a number. And then they let the mocking basically fake that while they wait for their version of a platform team to actually implement it in the database and make sure it can scale and whatever. So you're able to build these features without having to wait for the underlying implementation Hmm. or having to do it yourself because, again, when you're at a big scale, like even a simple thing like I want to add a new table or a new column, I mean, you're looking at it nine ways to Sunday and how many indexes does this need and should it be here? And so uh, GraphQL, I think, really enables the front-end people to basically yeah. come up with cool ideas and not be held down by like 
okay, well, this active record query, how is this going to perform or whatever? Um, that's pushed down much further. Uh, yeah. And GraphQL can, I think, help them build more interesting products. Yeah, and to add to the Facebook use case, so GraphQL came out in 2012, around the time Facebook became public. And uh, so Zuck was, he basically said that their implementation of mobile was really bad. And so the problem was they had to rebuild their mobile from ground up to make it better. And they use GraphQL to do that. So rather than be stuck within the confines of what the dashboard, the Facebook newsfeed looks like on web, they were able to rethink the way how to get data on, on the actual mobile client uh, using GraphQL uh, because of that. So there was no limitations based on API. And then, plus, uh, another thing that actually Lee Brightman actually mentioned that you build your API based on like how you get it. So with graphical, um, which is it's funny spelling, not a lot of people <laughs> realize it's, it's graph IQL. Uh, but they call it graphical. They're really <laughs> proud of that pun, I will tell yeah. you. <laughs> but uh, yeah, a lot of people, there's only one person who presented actually yesterday that, yeah. that said it wrong yeah. multiple times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. anyway, besides that, so with graphical, like there's the, the completion of just typing in queries is like, that's one thing that I was basically sold on. Like mm-hmm. to be able to just type in user and then see, get an idea of like, oh, so user has this stuff. Like mm-hmm. I can just kind of figure out my queries without. Ever going to the the GitHub documentation like yeah. directly and saying, okay, let me just traverse through all this stuff and try to see what I need. No, it's actually this. It's just going to show you within Graphical, which is like amazing. And the, and I mean, there are there are ways to bring that to rest. You know, like there's like yeah. things like Swagger, and we use JSON schema for a while that can get you there. You know, but it always feels so additive. You know, like you have to remember. So we still build REST APIs, yeah. right? And so new features come out, we build them in GraphQL, and then generally speaking, now we build them in GraphQL, and then we back the REST endpoints with GraphQL. So that way, we don't have to run two implementations. But that's not true before GraphQL, right? Like the yeah. application engineers would go build their feature, and then they would come back, you know, a couple weeks after the feature went out, and then they would build the REST endpoint, and then they would go build the JSON schema that says, okay, this this response should have. These objects with these types, and oh, wait, this didn't quite work. It's so great with GraphQL just to have it so baked in, mm. you know, instead of thinking, okay, what is this? Is this ever going to be null? Well, it's null right now, so it's probably going to be null. And then you put it in, you know, and then you don't really think through, do I have a data problem? Should this ever be null? Whatever. And so I think that was really compelling is it's not like GraphQL was the first thing to ever do all these things, it's just really, really thin. But the things it does well, it does really, really well. Yeah, you know. So you guys said you back your RESTful endpoints on GraphQL. Yeah, now not, we do. not the other way. Did you start going the other way though? Where? Um, so we didn't only because we knew we wanted to use GraphQL internally, and so we needed to go as close to like the database as possible. Mm-hmm. So in turn, so we had to back everything by MySQL. Ultimately, Active Record still in almost all cases, but a, a lot of people who do move to GraphQL do. Back their initial GraphQL implementations with their REST API or a microservice REST API or whatever. The whole point is that you don't have to jump, you know, headlong in and write everything to the database directly. But um, because we are using it internally, in process, in the web view, and externally, we couldn't afford to kind of like. Go out to our own API to load our website, you know? Uh, performance. Uh, yeah, it wouldn't it be good. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, no, we we didn't do that. But I know I know a lot of people do do that where um, they might already have microservices or they might already have a REST API and they want to give GraphQL a chance. And so they basically just do what we described. You 
put it up and you make a multitude of calls to your own API to populate it and you send it out. So it might not be horribly performant, depending on what language you're in, you can do threading or make multiple calls at the same time, but for us, we definitely just go straight to the database. And then uh, to make Ryan jealous just a little bit about <laughs> GraphQL Summit yesterday, and yeah. that he didn't go. Rub it in, thanks. Yeah, I was actually, so I'll just answer my own question, but I was actually really impressed with the turnout of the community. I'm actually really bullish on the open source project altogether. Uh, what was your opinion of the actual conference itself? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I thought the same exact thing. I mean, there were a lot of people there. I think what's interesting is that if the, the number of people that were speaking from uh, at that conference were like big company people. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Normally, yeah. you would expect to go to this young technology conference, and it's like fourteen startups, of which you know three you've used, and the other you know eleven you don't know about. Yeah. But in this scenario, it was both. I mean, it was like big companies, huge, huge companies like Credit Karma was there, Condé Nast was talking about what they're up to, as well as you know hackers and small companies looking to use this. So. I was really surprised by that because, to be totally honest, I expected it to be much smaller, newer shops willing to take the risk. Uh, but I think what you're finding is, is, and I don't want to take too much credit for this, but like, I, I when we decided to ship GraphQL, a big part of it early was let's like beat the bushes and see who comes out. You know, like if <laughs> GitHub gets nice and loud and says, "Our, you know, our, we're building an API that's public in GraphQL, and here it is today, and it's super early and it doesn't work particularly well, but like here it is. All of a sudden, like all these companies aren't afraid to come out and talk about it. Like Shopify, for example. Yeah. They got right up on stage and they're like, yeah, our whole mobile app is built in GraphQL, even though we've never really talked about this publicly before. Yeah. And so it's really interesting, and that's what we, like, that's what we wanted because in order for our again, very selfishly, in order for our API to be particularly successful, the community needs to know what GraphQL is. You know, we can't just be like, this is the new thing, get on it and hope that everyone rushes over. So by doing that, I think we're going to see, like Lee Byron, one of the co-creators said, we're going to see a lot more tooling. We're going to see a lot more open source clients, a lot more companies using this, which will help the overall adoption, which will make it much more comfortable for other companies, Facebook included, potentially to launch a public GraphQL API. Because that's that's definitely something that's kind of lacking right now. It feels like just early, it feels you know like a cool thing to use GraphQL in. To yeah. be totally honest, I would love to get rid of that as quickly as possible because once something becomes uncool, then it's like serious. You know, you can actually use it and trust it, which yeah. is part of what they talked about at the GraphQL summit with you know Lee talking about RFCs and how they're going to move towards a six month um, change schedule. So I, I'm I'm excited. I was really excited at the at the summit to see. Just how serious this yeah. is already, and I'm hoping that more companies will feel comfortable coming out and saying, "Yep, our web app is backed by GraphQL." Because right now, it definitely has a JavaScript focus and a uh, mobile client focus. Yeah, and I would love to say, "Nope, we're a Ruby shop. We call it in Ruby. We process it in Ruby. We use it in Ruby." And I know of other companies that are about to go, "Yep, us too." And so I'm excited to watch that happen over the coming months into next year. You talked about a little bit like. Swagger and things like that, mm-hmm. and how it's new and emerging, and Relay starts putting some of the you know structure in place. Mm-hmm. Like with REST, there's some really good structure. You mm-hmm. have very strong opinions about how to build a REST API. Yeah, it's still emerging. Is there any leaders other than you know you guys, for lack of a better, on the best practices around building a GraphQL? API. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the folks that put the conference on yesterday, like Apollo, they definitely have a lot of tools and they can help with that. I think if you look at like GraphQL.org and you look at all like the libraries that people are doing, that's a big part of it. I think what you're finding now is that if you go to 
GitHub and search for, I forget the exact URL, but the GraphQL project itself. There's like RFCs and a bunch of people, small companies, big companies, interested people, like submitting RFCs. And they're trying to push GraphQL forward, but I think what we're also acknowledging is that this is also a serious technology now. Like we're out of, you know, the sandbox, you know, we're not just sort of messing around with what our options are. And they're trying to make sure that what gets added to GraphQL is needed in GraphQL, not like suggested in GraphQL. Because really GraphQL is, it's what I find so compelling is it's so thin. There's so little there. You can read the spec. You can just sit down, grab a cup of coffee and read the whole thing, understand it and be good to go. So I think we won't see a ton of people really pushing GraphQL forward because it's a type system. You know, it's very clear how it should be parsed. And then Relay starts to add some more complex things on top of it. There's nothing stopping us or someone else from going, okay, well, we're going to make our connections different. They're going to look like this or whatever. It's all still valid GraphQL. It would be backwards compatible, but it's like a, a standard. And so I don't know of a ton of places where there are people sort of pushing things forward independently, but I, I think with Relay and maybe in the future we might see more companies sort of glomming around. Some of these ideas should go back to GraphQL. You know, so like connections being one of the things that is primarily an idea of Relay, how you get a multitude of different objects or objects having a global ID. Uh, those are all Relay ideas. But I think you might see well, GraphQL going, these are so good, these should just be part of GraphQL. But at the same time, there's nothing stopping me from just doing that right now if I wanted to. Mm -hmm. That's what makes it so interesting in comparison to sort of having to convince, you know, Rails, like go to DHH and say, well, no, this should work like that. And he's like, well, no, you know, uh, <laughs> with GraphQL because there's so, it just feels so unopinionated, you know, in a way. Yeah. Both extremely opinionated and unopinionated at the same time. Um, it's very easy for people to just go, all right, I'm just going to build it like this and, you know, let the clients use it. And with the graphical IDE, it's, Pretty easy yeah. to kind of feel your way around to figure out, oh, okay, I understand what these people are trying to do with this. Yeah. I used the graphical without much research going into it. I just kind of hit, I first went to the GitHub open source, like, uh, what is what do you guys call it? Graphical thing? Uh, GraphQL Explorer. Yeah, GraphQL Explorer. <laughs> so I hit the Explorer and I just kind of poked around. I was like, okay, I, just, I got, finally got my key and I just looked at my repos and then I looked at Netlify's repos and then I looked at other pe people's repos and I was like, Okay, I understand. I can I can navigate through it pretty easily, and just I didn't read anything before going in. Yeah, there. and it's cool. Like from from a documentation side too, especially coming from like a REST background, you normally are building it and then documenting it as like a second step uh, with GraphQL. Eventually, like, I document it. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, or like you know, and some people do actually document it first, right, and then go implement it. But there's nothing saying that your documentation matches up. I mean, this is a big problem for us. Like even at GitHub, you know, developer.github.com, the REST docs don't always match reality. It's because they've just fall out of sync, just like comments fall out of sync in code, you know. Um, but with GraphQL, because the types in, are intended to have descriptions, the fields are intended to describe themselves, because they're typed, and types can inherently have descriptions, it's very easy to auto-generate documentation. And so we both use the graphical IDE, but we also have a separate script that builds the docs for the site. And those are just all automatically generated. And it's amazing, because normally it's like you make a change in the REST endpoint, and there's like seven other places you have to go let the world know that you made that change. Yeah, but now we can just do it all automatically. Cool, awesome. So I'm actually pretty impressed. Uh, I'm going to transition the picks, but I think that was a really good conversation. I think it mm -hmm. definitely piqued a lot of people's interest. So hopefully through this podcast, more people will jump on the bandwagon. Yeah, and, and send with. send feedback in. I'd love to hear more for sure. Awesome. And there's a um, 
You guys have even a developer platform too, which is pretty active about different GraphQL stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can go, uh, if you go to developer.github.com, we have links to our forums and everything. And so you can go on there and add your comments and you know questions. And we're, we, all the engineers are the ones that actually answer them. So it's actually really compelling for us to get that feedback directly. Very cool. Awesome. So transitioning to jam picks. So jam picks are everything we're jamming on, anything we're interested in, keeping us going for mm-hmm. work life, home life, fun life. Um, so I'll let you go last since you are the guest. <laughs> the newest one. <laughs> yeah, so Ryan, did you have any picks that you wanted to share? The thing that's been uh, haunting me has been uh, Halloween coming up, actually. <laughs> okay. i putting together a costume, and for the first time, I'm going to have to do face makeup. And I tried putting this like <laughs> ghoul makeup on, and I looked, and it was terrible, and I looked like him from ICP, and I was like, oh, we're washing that off immediately, so... I go home at night and try to like stare into the mirror and see if I can do makeup and not look terrible. Wait, what's wrong with ICP? Everything. <laughs> Let's just be clear. For the listeners, I, I doubt anybody got that reference if you're not like, you know, around the age of 30. Um, hey, hey. <laughs> insane hey. clown posse. It's uh, I was with you. I wasn't gonna say anything, <laughs> okay. but I was with you. <laughs> yeah, it's like a it's a rap core band around the Limp Biscuit age. <laughs> yeah. So cool. So you've been practicing your makeup. Yeah, me and Halloween, I get really into it. I have an awesome costume put together. I don't know that I've ever practiced my Halloween. Art though, yeah, yeah. I feel like I, that's a, that's a, it was a huge commitment to that. Well, like I was like um, I had to make all this rope stuff, and so I was like hand braiding ropes and like everything like that. It's, it's oh man. Well, this fun. is this is San Francisco where people wear their costumes all day. Yeah, yeah. And there's 13 percent children in the city, so <laughs> more dogs than children, right? Yeah, more dogs than children. So why people are going out <laughs> on Halloween in their costumes all day, I don't know. But you know, this is this is a city where you never grow up. Awesome. <laughs> Awesome. So my pick actually is going to be a project called React Music. Um, it's a library that, so if you're familiar with 808s and like sine waves and all that mm-hmm. other stuff, all of it is basically math and code. And someone has built this project, um, Formula Labs, I think, is the company that actually put this together. I'm not sure who specifically put it together, but it's out there and it's awesome. So with React, it's all component-based. You can actually throw your components, so you can throw your 808 component on there, and you can add in an array based on like how many beats. So if it's like an eight count, you can just throw your beats where your snare and your hi-hat is. And it's pretty amazing. So I, I just saw a talk on it like literally before I walked in here earlier today, and uh, it's amazing. I think I'm going to make a beat this weekend, maybe cover a song, and maybe I can uh, share it with the world eventually. So highly recommend React Music. That's awesome. You're going to have to also mix it with the Netlify guitar that we have now. Oh yeah! I'll, After you tune it, I'll play some uh, acoustic, acoustic electronica. <laughs> yeah. Did you see the? Were you able to watch the Mac uh, announcement today? Oh, I missed the Mac announcement. I saw screenshots, right. but I also saw screenshots like two days ago. Yeah, they, the, the, the TLDR spoiler alert. There's uh, on the Touch Bar. Uh, they they spent like a three or four minute segment of a gentleman DJing just using the Touch Bar. <laughs> so I highly recommend, given your interest in uh, creating your own beats, that now if you buy the new Mac, yeah, you, you're good to go. I'm sure implementation is probably not going to be <laughs> that cool at all. I don't know. If you did it live. It looked legit. Yeah, I could just imagine myself like scratching my keyboard at an EDM <laughs> yeah. concert. Yeah, it's like, hold on, guys, it's gonna work. <laughs> I don't. My hands are sweaty. 
Uh, awesome. Yeah. So mine would have to be, I don't have a lot of free time. I have a kid and it's Halloween season. So like, you know, fall, I live in uh, Connecticut, so I live in New England. So we've got apple picking and pumpkin picking and all kinds of much higher percentage of children up there. <laughs> um, but before I came out here, I was able to check out um, Battlefield 1, new video game. Okay. Uh, so Battlefield 1 is, uh, if you're familiar with Battlefield, it's like, uh, it's been one of the big, you know, war games, mainly in World War II. And now they're bringing it to World War One. It's actually like really interesting. Uh, so like I'm big into story games. I'm not big into like Call of Duty or anything like that because like the, there's no real story there. And this is like the first time that apparently Battlefield has really killed like like a really good story. So I only just started playing it before I came out, but it's like the thing I'm waiting, get on a plane, go home, say <laughs> hi to everyone, and be like, hey, I'm home now, and I can sit down and keep playing. It's pretty cool. I think it just came out uh, last week or something like that. Oh, but pretty cool. Yeah, I I spent a, I wasted a lot of my sophomore year in college on Battlefield. Battlefield 1942, yep, mm-hmm. which is the World War II version, but probably much crappier. I'm a big fan of Battlefield games, but I definitely have no time either. <laughs> That's, yeah, I had a, a neighborhood kid comes over and sees I have like an Xbox, a PS4, I have a PC. He's like, He's like, you have all those? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I have them. He's like, when do you get to play them? I'm like, that's the secret of being an adult. You have money to buy all the things you wanted as a kid, but you never have time to actually do any of those things. So I feel cool, and I get to play video games once every three weeks. So <laughs> My Xbox has a thick layer of dust on yeah, it right exactly. now. Exactly. Yeah. Dust and dog the hair. adult dust. <laughs> yeah. ah, that sounds disgusting. But on, on that note, <laughs> I just want to conclude the podcast before it gets any weirder in here. Kyle, thanks again for, for showing up and yeah. talking about GraphQL. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, I'm definitely excited to see what GitHub is going to push forward, especially in this community, but also in future communities too as well. You guys are doing, GitHub Universe is pretty impressive as far as all the stuff you guys laid out. And you guys are definitely, integrations were a big part of GitHub Universe. So I'm really happy to see that because Netlify is an integrator company as well in GitHub. Yep. So, very More cool. to come for sure. Much appreciated. So thanks again. And listeners, keep spreading the jam. That's all the time we have for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. 